Black-eyed peas as cornbread, what makes you so strong? Black-eyed peas as cornbread, what makes you so strong? Cornbread, say I come from where Joe Lewis was born. This is hell. Coming to you from Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, it's Monday, August 7th. I'm Will Ippen, producer on This is Hell, filling in again for Chuck Mertz. That's right. All you listeners are on your second week settling for my voice while Chuck and his family are on their annual and hopefully restorative accident-free trip in northern Michigan's lake country. Little news from the cabin at the lake has reached me in the past week, other than the lack of internet connectivity. Enjoy it while you can, Chuck and company. I assume this lack of news means that... Everybody is vibing appropriately. What did I do this weekend? Aside from picking a boatload of squash and uh, a lot of pruning in my happy community garden plot up on Howard Street, I went to a very interesting screening at Chicago's premier independent cinema, The Music Box. For those who haven't been... Music Box is a local treasure that features silly stuff, like cat videos, more on that in a moment, as well as foreign and art films, screening of classics like Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, and uh, documentary series, and so on. It has all the vibes of a classic movie palace, complete with a really good organist who performs while patrons find their seats and await the start of the show. The screening I attended was the 2023 edition of the Cat Video Fest, which has apparently been going on since 2012, without my knowledge. Cat Video Fest is a compilation reel of the latest and best cat videos culled from the countless hours of unique submissions and sourced animations, music videos, and classic internet powerhouses. Cat Video Fest is a joyous communal experience, only available in theaters, and raises money for cats in need through partnerships with local cat charities, animal welfare organizations, and shelters to best serve cats in the area. Don't tell Mel, but uh, I'm more of a dog person. So this was my first time, but it was a real hoot. I mean, the internet was created in part for cat videos. They film pretty hilariously those little nimble stealthy sometimes spastic creatures 
I was partial to the music video category. Um, it's delightful, highly creative, a lot of talented people out there with both music production skills and uh, hilarious cats. I also enjoyed trying to guess which fellow viewers attend every single year. Uh, I must say, it's always a great time laughing in public with others. I will be your guide through hell this week until Chuck's return to the interview booth on the other side of the glass on Monday, August 14th. Presumably, producer Kat Jarvanen will be there to hear all about Chuck's respite from writing shows, conducting interviews, probably reading a lot, and whatever the hell else he does here in hell. You can welcome him back in person at the next Office Hours on Wednesday, August 16th at Carrie's Lounge. That's at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. When you do come by Office Hours, be sure to check out the art show right here in Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge. This is Art, which is the name of the show, features a wide range of art for your perusal and maybe even purchase neither this is hell nor carrie's lounge take a cut from the art sale that's right a hundred percent of the proceeds go to the artists that's pretty cool if you ask me where else can you see an elaborate functional crown made from a found cat skeleton it's pretty metal come by and have a look it could be yours this week continues our deep dive into our archive of interviews with prolific historian and listener favorite Gerald Horn, recorded between 2018 and 2023. For those of you who aren't familiar with Gerald Horn or his work, he's a pretty big deal in the discipline of history, especially in radical historiography and the historiography of race and racism in all of its forms. He is the Moores Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. Horn has written over 30 books and 100 scholarly articles on issues of racism in a variety of relations, including labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and war. He has also written extensively about the film industry. Horn holds a PhD in history from Columbia, a JD from Cal Berkeley, his BA from Princeton, so he's done a lot of school. Uh, he teaches courses in the civil rights movement and U.S. history through film. He also teaches graduate courses in diplomatic history, labor history, and 20th century African-American history. So quite the spectrum for one historian to have a handle on all of that literature and to make original and impactful contributions in all of those fields. He's truly a remarkable scholar. This year, he won the Franz Fanon Lifetime Achievement Award from the Caribbean Philosophical Association. If you haven't yet listened to the first three interviews in this six-episode series, I highly encourage you to go back and check them out. 
The Monday, July 21st episode from last week features an interview with Horn about his 2018 study published by Monthly Review Press titled The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. The Tuesday, August 1st episode features a 2019 interview on his book published that same year by international publishers titled White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. The Wednesday, August 2nd interview discusses the findings and insights from Horn's 2021 book, and American Book Award winner, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, published in 2020 by Monthly Review Press. Today's interview opens up our second week of our Horn Deep Dive, and it turns to sports history. Specifically, its intersection with race and racism in his 2020 work from international publishers titled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Tomorrow, that is Tuesday, August 8th, returns to the long reach of America's so-called peculiar institution. That's racialized chattel slavery for those not familiar with the term. Um, as seen through the history of the Slaveholders' Republic in Texas, Horn's 2022 book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism, was published uh, that year by international publishers. Finally, on Wednesday, we wrap up this series uh, when we revisit our most recent interview with Horn which was recorded on July 10th, 2023. In it, he and Chuck discuss his most recent work from international publishers, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 through 2000. There is no arc of history, listeners, because this is hell. Coming up after the interview, I will reveal the first batch of your questions to this week's Question from Hell which asks, what do you dislike most about yourself? That's right, listeners. We're asking you to face yourselves honestly and tell us all, what do you dislike most about yourself? I'm sure Chuck will have a uh, pretty extensive answer uh, when he returns. You can answer the question from hell on any of our social media currently patreon facebook twitter or x doesn't that new app icon look like a uh, like a porn app or something just something greasy i can't put my finger on it um as well as discord or by emailing chuck at chuck at this is hell.com on wednesday i will announce my favorite answer of the week and the winner gets their choice of This Is Hell swag, available at our website at thisishell.com. Get your hands on some of the new items available from our store and represent God's favorite radio show in your favorite way. 
Before all that, however, we will hear a hand-picked best of the past inside the present with resident historian and all-around good dude, Sebastian Vupper. Before all that, however, we're going to hear a hand-picked, that's by my hand, listeners, best of the past inside the present with resident historian and all-around good dude, Sebastian Vupper. This segment comes from this past February, part three of his four-part Black History Month series that asks listeners to strap in, refrain from getting comfortable, and reflect critically on some very crucial moments in black history that permeate the present. This past Inside the Present segment traces the rise and course of the Jim Crow era and the ways in which the spirit of that time continues to shape American society and culture in the present. I thought that episode would pair nicely with today's interview. Without further delay, here's Chuck's conversation with Gerald Horn, recorded on January 5th, 2021, on the intertwined histories of boxing and black men under the long reach of slavery, white supremacy, and capitalist exploitation in the American 20th century and his book on the topic, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing from International Publishers. I will catch you all on the other side. This is hell. Boxing is often referred to as the sweet science, where a keen observer can be impressed by the physical skills, reaction time, strength, and speeds of athletes in their prime. It's also brutal, even deadly, abusive to its participants with a history of corruption that is grounded in the terror of slavery and rooted in the Eurocentric view of masculinity. Here to help us have a better understanding of the history of boxing, historian Gerald Horn is author of The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Gerald. Your book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, we named that on our last broadcast of 2020 as making our list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell. That is your third year in a row of having one of our favorite books featured here on This Is Hell to make our list. In 2018, it was White Supremacy Confronted in 20 or 2019. And in 2018, it was The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism. So I just wanted to tell you, Gerald, thank you so much for being on our show over the past few years. It's always a pleasure and I always enjoy your writing. It's And it's truly an honor to have you back on. Well, it's truly an honor to be back on. You write the boxer known as Bo Jack developed his skill as a fighter as a result of a brutal practice stemming from slavery in his native state of Georgia. Born in 1921, Bo Jack became light heavyweight champion in no small measure because of his skilled participation in battle royales in Augusta, where for the enjoyment of affluent Euro-American members of the famed local golf club, he and other low-wage uh, caddies and shoe shiners were blindfolded in a boxing ring and were compelled to slug one another until there was only one left. As of eight, or 1955, Bojack was adjudged to be the greatest non-heavyweight draw 
in boxing history. To what extent is boxing the product of chattel slavery? And how much is it a a cultural and historical universal, something that has always been a sport as in hand-to-hand combat? Well, certainly, as your latter comment suggests, the hand-to-hand combat or boxing goes back millennia. With regard to the book at hand, which focused heavily, although not exclusively, on the prominence of black Americans in the sweet science, much of that can be attributed not only to slavery, but fighting the process of enslavement. I mean, for example, I begin the book not only talking about Bojack, but talking about the development of certain kinds of martial arts on the shores of Africa, which begin to arise precisely when the slave trade begins to accelerate. That is to say, in what I called in my last book, the long 16th century, speaking of the 1500s. And certainly, I think that with regard to black Americans in boxing, the fact that you had many of these black men who were involved in these so-called battle royales, which were were, were quite uh, brutal and bloodthirsty, it obviously hones many of them to then excel in the boxing ring. Then, of course, there's this concept of masculinity, which you alluded to in your opening comment. Now, to be sure, there has been a long line of women boxers, including the daughter of the late Muhammad Ali, amongst others, and a long line as well of women wrestlers. But I think it's fair to say that there has been this uh, unique connection between masculinity, or at least a certain form of masculinity, and boxing, and particularly masculinity, boxing, and black Americans. Because although this may be hard to believe in 2021, uh, earlier in the 20th century, and certainly before, there was this cockeyed notion that black men were not altogether masculine, that if so, they, quote, would not have allowed themselves to become enslaved, as the saying goes. And therefore, what happened is that Black Americans felt they had to fight back against this particular trope. And I think that it also helps to explain the success of Black Americans in professional football, which is another rather violent sport that is disproportionately dominated by Black American athletes, about, what, 65 70%, if not more. And so from the inception of boxing as a popular entertainment in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, you had black Americans excelling, but then they were running up against the brick wall of white supremacy because many of these black American boxers were getting paid handsomely to do what, if they had thought of it outside of the boxing ring, they could have been lynched for. (laughs) That is to say, uh, beating some white man into a pulp or into submission. And so then, therefore, that leads to the long-time, long-term search for a so-called great white hope. Uh, You may be familiar with the movie of the same name starring James Earl Jones, uh, the actor um, who, of course, plays Jack Johnson, uh, the boxer. And uh, Jack Johnson, of course, was a black American born in Galveston, Texas in 1878 and becomes heavyweight champion circa 1910, uh, which upsets the apple cart with regard to masculinity, presumably with regard to white supremacy as well, which leads to this long-time, long-term search for a great white hope, so-called. 
and you can make an argument that that search has yet to be eliminated. You mentioned this perceived docility of black Americans, and I don't really understand that concept coming out of an era of slavery when, as we discussed with you in the past and as we discussed last year with Vincent Brown and his book, Tacky's Revolt, there were centuries and centuries of slave uprisings, almost to the point where it was a transatlantic slave war. So to what so what explains this concept of docility? Was this an intentional uh, disinformation campaign? What explains this sense of docility when that certainly wasn't the case of uh, those who had been involved in so many slave uprisings? Well, turn the coin over. Uh, imagine, if you like, during the era of slavery, if people had dealt with the brutal, bitter reality that, as you put it, there was this transatlantic uh, war involving the enslaved versus the enslavers, it would make it very difficult for many people to sleep at night. It was easier for folks to sort of coddle themselves with this idea that actually not only were these enslaved folks docile, but in many cases it was felt that they were happy-go-lucky, that they were satisfied with their plight, and that therefore the enslavers could sleep well at night. Uh, But keep in mind as well that even during the time when there was this idea that these black Americans were basically docile, that they weren't really men, it didn't take much for the script to be flipped and for the idea to take flight that actually they were brutal meanies, that they were brutal beasts. And in fact, you, you can see them happening in boxing. Uh, later in the 20th century, uh, with the rise of Sonny Liston, some of your listeners might recall Sonny Liston and his epical bouts with the man once known as Cassius Clay, then Muhammad Ali, his epical bouts with Floyd Patterson, a former heavyweight champion. Uh, Sonny Liston was portrayed uh, quite openly and notoriously as a beast. I mean, that was taken straight from headlines. And so I don't think that it was uh, a radical disjuncture when you have this devolution or evolution of these black American men on the one hand being treated as if they were docile, and on the other hand, in the blink of an eye, being treated like they were brutal beasts uh, who had to be restrained by any means necessary, up to and including mass incarceration, lynching, and all the rest. So do you think whites during the, I mean, this is totally aside, but just as a follow-up of what you were saying, do you think that whites were actively involved in denialism on a daily basis of the brutality, the horrors, the terror of slavery? Well, I think so. And, and, and in some ways, this ties into some of my work that I've dealt with. Uh, I mean, for example, you know, I wrote this book some years ago called The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. And in that book, I posited this idea that it was difficult to reconcile the creation myth of the founding of the United States, that is to say, these great men who walked on water, the likes of which we have not seen before or since, speaking of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, etc., and this vaunted constitution guaranteeing equality and and Bill of Rights and all the rest, that was hard to reconcile with the brutal reality on the ground. Uh, That is to say, mass enslavement, 
uh, that is to say, dispossession and genocide against Native Americans. And if you begin to contemplate seriously the latter, uh, you cannot maintain the former. And as I said, you might even have trouble sleeping at night. And which, of course, uh, just as an aside, it, it brings us to the present because <laughs> I noticed your witty comment about the 11,780 votes that are being searched for in Georgia, uh, which then needs to be seen in the context of an extraordinary letter by 10 former chiefs of the Pentagon uh, warning the military not to get involved in U.S. domestic politics, which means that they know something we may not know. So in other words, what's happening is that reality and fantasy or, or sort of uh, well, fant- reality is catching up with fantasy in, in, in a word. And basically, that's what happened at a certain point with boxing when you saw that the rise of Sonny Liston led to this idea not that black men were docile, but actually that they were beasts. That is to say, the reality, in a, in a sense, became even more distorted, but it, I'm afraid to say it did get closer to the truth in so far as uh, many black men re- reacted very violently uh, to being discriminated against and being subjected to white supremacy. You write that stretching back centuries hand-to-hand combat had attained a kind of popularity in vast regions of Africa itself. Was that fighting any different from what would become boxing? Did it did it have the same kind of rules? Were, were victories only determined by knockouts as they had have been in boxing? Well, you and your listeners may be familiar with capoeira, which is a combination of ballet and martial arts, and it is most popular in Brazil. The roots are purportedly in Brazil's companion in terms of developing the slave trade, speaking of the Southwest African nation of Angola. And if you look at capoeira, which you can, of course, find online, you can find examples, you'll find it has a certain kind of beauty. Uh, It it has a, a certain kind of majesty. And it also, I think it's fair to say, is less violent to a certain degree than boxing, although, of course, you can be hurt. Uh, in capoeira, it, it, it more or less uh, exhibits a, a certain kind of grace, a certain kind of delicate grace at that. And so I think that that speaks to your question with regard to how boxing has evolved in the United States is not necessarily was not necessarily the only course that it could take. As a matter of fact, later on in, in this book, we're talking about the bittersweet science. I talk about an Italian visitor to the United States in the 1950s who contrasts boxing as he interprets it in Western Europe with regard to boxing in the United States. He says that in the United States, the idea is to go for the knockout blow and to basically (laughs) administer kind of brain damage to your opponent. Whereas in Europe, according to this writer, it was much more of the sweet science. Um, It was oftentimes said of Jack Johnson, who I made reference to a moment ago, that in his boxing style, he turned his opponent into an agent of that person's destruction just by dint of his skill as a defensive boxer. You see that to a certain degree with the current champion Floyd Mayweather Jr., who is also a very skilled defensive boxer and is very difficult to hit. Now, it's interesting 
Merriweather's fights are often fights are oftentimes described as boring because his opponent has difficulty in even touching him. But in a certain sense, if you're a fan of the sport or a student of the sport, it has a certain delicacy and a certain beauty that is difficult to surmount. I was going to save this for later, Gerald, but you clearly have an appreciation of the athleticism and the sport of boxing. How do you balance that with your understand of the historic brutality and corruption of boxing? Well, it goes back to the word you mentioned in your introductory remarks, which is capitalism, uh, which not only tends to convert virtually everything into a commodity, but tends to lend a certain kind of brutalization to everything that it touches. Uh, I quote one source in this book as saying that boxing is so dirty and so corrupt that they should hold the matches in sewers if there was enough headroom. And I think that there is something to that. I mean, first of all, even though, like myself thus far, I've talked about boxers who have oftentimes made a grand living. Look at Floyd Merriweather Jr., who was a multimillionaire many times over. But for every Floyd Merriweather Jr., there are other boxers, uh, scores perhaps hundreds of thousands of other boxers uh, who leave the ring with brain damage, uh, who leave the ring not being able to walk or paralyze. Some of them don't leave the ring at all because throughout this book, I talk about the fatalities in the ring. Uh, For example, the most notorious example comes in 1962 when Benny Pare, whose roots are in Cuba, is beaten to a pulp and killed in the ring by Emil Griffith, one of the top boxers of his generation. And this, of course, ties into another theme of this book, because what happens is that the deceased speaks of Griffith as being uh, gay, which apparently Griffith was. But in 1962, that was not something that she would necessarily parade or want public. And so as a result, uh, Griffith executed him in the ring. And so in a sense, that represents the, the ugliness of boxing, uh, the homophobia, the toxic male supremacy, the fact that in Madison Square Garden, where this incident took place, people are cheering as a man is being executed, as a man is being killed. And uh, then, of course, there's the fact that the executed was barely literate, uh, that uh, he signed his contracts with a, a thumbprint that he was exploited ceaselessly and shame, shamelessly by his management, who took most of his purses, that is to say, most of the money that he earned. And so in some ways, boxing, I'm afraid to say, uh, represents a rather astute emblem uh, for this system known as capitalism to which you alluded in your introductory remarks. You talk about, you write about uh, boxing's impact on the way we perceive masculinity, but you also write about how boxing is an outgrowth, kind of something that is created out of chattel slavery. 
So let me skip the middleman here. To what degree do you think slavery has an impact on the view of ma masculinity here in the United States to this day? Well, I think it, it uh, see, the, 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 this, this points up your question, which is a very intelligent question, really points up some of the weaknesses of the scholarship. Uh, you would think that that astute question that you asked would be in the forefront of questions asked and answered by scholars, but such is not the case. Uh, I will say that we have not had a full or even half-hearted interrogation of the impact of slavery, not only in terms of the evolution of boxing, but in the evolution of labor management relations. Because after all, uh, slaves were just workers. They were just workers who didn't who were not paid. And you could ask yourself if the rather torturous nature of labor management relations in this country today, where, by the way, you see uh, frontline workers, as they're called, uh, falling out like flies because of the pandemic, and people in hospitals, nurses, uh, hospital staff, cafeteria, not with personal protective equipment, that treating these workers as so many replaceable parts in a machine, in some ways, that is a description that you could say about slavery. Because if you look at certain slave societies, I mean, for example, Brazil, which imported more Africans, enslaved Africans, than the United States even, believe it or not. The idea in Brazil was that you would import an enslaved African and then work that person to death and then import another. Uh, to a, a certain degree, that was also the system in the United States of America. And you have to ask yourself, since we've had uh, enslavement on these shores much, long, much longer than we've had non-enslavement, non-enslavement, 1865 to today, what, 160 years, more or less, and slavery, let's say, from the 1500s up to 1865. And so just mathematically and quantitatively, you can make an argument that slavery has left a deep imprint on this culture and society that we've yet to disentangle. We are speaking with historian Gerald Horn, author of The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Gerald is John Jay and Rebecca Moore, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. This is our fourth interview with Gerald, and you can find all of our interviews with Gerald at our website. All you have to do is search on his last name, Horn. That's H-O-R-N-E. Gerald, I want to ask you about what appear to be contradictions within boxing, but every time I see or perceive contradictions somewhere when I have the author on the show, the analyst on the show, they point out that these aren't contradictions, that it's a mistake by thinking that there is monolithic thinking within a community. So I just want to ask you about these possible contradictions, then you tell me how these may not be. You point out that boxing is an exploitative product of slavery, but it also contributed to the fight against what you call U.S. apartheid, a product of that same slavery. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how can mm -hmm. it how can it both be a product of slavery and be an agent against U.S. apartheid? Well, that's a good question, and the answer, uh, fortunately, is is simple. What happens is that as Jack Johnson, Galveston, Texas born 1878, becomes heavyweight champion in 1910, 
he accumulates a fair amount of wealth. Uh, he's followed by Joe Lewis, the heavyweight boxing champion, the Brown Bomber, as he's called, with the roots in both Alabama and Detroit, the champion in the 1930s and 1940s. And then, of course, Muhammad Ali, a champion beginning in the 1960s up until perhaps we can say the early 80s. And all of these men are accumulating a fair amount of wealth, even though they are exploited. I mean, that's particularly the case for Muhammad Ali because he enters the ring at the time that pay-per-view is taking off, and pay-per-view really brings untold wealth into the sport, mostly, of course, into the hands, the grubby paws of promoters who are still in the land of the living, speaking of Don King of New York City or Bob Arum of Nevada, Las Vegas. But it's also fair to say that boxers like Ali also accumulate a fair amount of wealth. And then, perhaps because of the objective conditions under which they're earning this wealth, which involves violence, white supremacy, exploitation, it helps generate a certain kind of political consciousness that causes, for example, in the case of Ali, for him to oppose not only the war in Vietnam, which brings even more adherence to that anti-war banner, but also he becomes a struggler against white supremacy in his own way. And you could say the same thing for Jack Johnson uh, going back to 1910. Uh, that is to say, after he comes under fire by the U.S. authorities, uh, he, in, in many ways, starts a worldwide struggle against white supremacy. He, he moves to Mexico. He tries to establish a beachhead against lynching and white supremacy across the border from Texas and Mexico. And so that helps to unravel this apparent conundrum, whereby boxing, on the one hand, is a sport that's enmeshed and immersed in the most rancid and the rankest white supremacy, exploitation, racism, etc. But on the other hand, like a lotus growing out of the mud, it helps to empower some of the victims of white supremacy and exploitation by putting money in their pockets and giving them a platform whereby they can then campaign and crusade against this system that helped to ensnare themselves and their ancestors. And you write about Maxi Spoon, a 150-pound southpaw and the son of Russian Jewish immigrants, started boxing in order to protect himself. Quote, in those days, said this man born in 1920, every neighborhood had its gangs. If you walked into the wrong neighborhood, you get whacked. Is boxing the result of or a contributor to racialized violence amongst the working class and poor? Is it the result of any perceived racialized competition amongst the working class and poor? for what could crudely be described as the crumbs, because this sounds a lot like a kind of divide-and-conquer strategy by the rich. Well, that's not an unfair assessment, but let me take your first point and uh, illustrate that this book also deals quite a bit with Jewish-American boxers. And by talking about Jewish-American boxers, I'm really helping to underscore what I'm saying about Black-American boxers. In other words, Believe it or not, there's a literature that suggests that the excellence of black Americans in certain sports is due to a, an alleged genetic component, so to say. And I won't bore you with the details. You can easily find it. But my contention is, is that 
in order to explain this phenomenon of excellence, you should not look to nature, you should look to nurture. And certainly, I think that the example of the great Jewish American boxers, of which there were many uh, before 1950, uh, for example, uh, Benny Leonard, uh, Barty Ross, many of them out of your own Chicago, by the way. And I, I, I talk about that in terms of Chicago. And it's interesting when you look at their interviews, they often talk about how they had to fight their neighbors, their Irish American, Italian and American neighbors. They had to develop quick fists. And then this translates into triumphs in the ring. <clears throat> But then after 1945, you not only have the discrediting of anti-Semitic Hitlerism and the rise of the civil rights movement, and you see the rise of black Americans, not only inside the ring, but outside the ring as well. But you also see a similar phenomenon with regard to Jewish Americans as well. That's oftentimes forgotten with regard to the civil rights movement. That is to say, it gave Jewish Americans a certain kind of social promotion as the level of bigotry generally in the United States began to decline. Now, to the second part of your question, I do think that it's it's an unfortunate phenomenon that because of the violence and racism inflicted upon subaltern communities like the black community, that oftentimes there's not an outlet to respond in a righteous manner, that is to say, against one's exploiter, and that instead that outrage is turned upon one another. Um, That is an unfortunate fact of life, but I would also say that correspondingly, that phenomenon has been dissipated uh, ever since the uh, rise of the unconstitutional unconstitutional nature of Jim Crow, which, of course, uh, is enunciated by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1954, although it is fair to say that more than a scintilla of that phenomenon continues to exist, and certainly it does serve the divide-and-conquer interests of those at the top of the socioeconomic pyramid. In another contradiction, uh, you write that Mal, I should say, perceived contradiction. And I want to make sure that people understand that after I thought about it for a while, it wasn't a contradiction. You write, uh, maladjusted thinking led to the search for a white hope, a heavyweight in particular, as you were mentioning earlier, who could initially defeat Jack Johnson, though their quest continued for a good deal of the 20th century when the brawny Galvestonian bested Jim Jeffries in Reno in 1910. This was not just an expression of the sport moving westward toward a presumed racial fluidity in the West and nostrum that did not prevent the scores of beatings and killings across racial lines that followed rapidly. The absurdity of the quest was exposed when reportedly the Japanese put forward a brown hope while the Chinese put forward a yellow hope and a Navajo Indian also volunteered, all revealing that what was at stake as much as anything else was vanquishing the Negro, a mandate in a republic where this was a dire priority. So did Johnson's success contribute to any degree of universalizing a fear of or even inferiority toward black people, especially black men? Was it both a challenge to white supremacy and a universalizing of fear and the perceived threat of black people by non-blacks? Well, that's a very complicated question. First of all, I would say that in the United States of America, as I've tried to make clear in books I've written on slavery, that 
the wealth of the United States was based upon the land seized from the Native Americans and then the liquidation of a good deal of that population, and then the exploitation of enslaved African labor. And there was a tendency on the part of enslaved African labor to revolt, which then leads to further persecution and prosecution of that particular community, which then leads in turn to a certain kind of demonizing of that community, which then underscores the desperate search for a so-called great white hope, which could supposedly bring things back to balance, restore the norm by making sure that in the boxing ring, at least, the black man is left flat on the canvas. Now, with regard to the second part of your question, the, the quote, universalizing of this phenomenon, I, I would say that certain a historian needs to write about this. I've thought about writing about it myself. One of the things that I've noticed in terms of my own research is how the United States tried valiantly to export anti-black attitudes abroad. I mean, for example, if you as a Euro-American were at a hotel in Paris and the hotel was not observing Jim Crow, uh, you would object and demand that the hotel observe Jim Crow. Otherwise, uh, you would leave. And oftentimes that sort of praxis was enough to make for the exportation of Jim Crow. That's point number one. Point number two is that the sad truth is, as I point out in the book we talked about last time on the 16th century, that the slave trade, the African slave trade, was not unique to the United States. It was not unique to London. It was not necessarily unique to Western Europe, France, Portugal, Spain. That the Ottoman Turks, for example, were involved in the African slave trade. You had an African slave trade leading across the Indian Ocean into uh, t today's Iraq, for example. Uh, to, you know, the Portuguese had a colony in Macau, which is now part of the People's Republic of China. It's off the, the coast of China. And uh, you had enslaved Africans there at the behest of the uh, Portuguese colonizers. And so the sad truth is, is that there has been a, a certain kind of demonizing uh, of the black population, and that demonizing has not only taken place in the United States of America, but to a certain degree, it's been a worldwide phenomenon. But at the same time, I would not want that latter comment to let the United States off the hook, because as I pointed out in other works, uh, perhaps the highest stage of anti-black demonizing was reached in this very same United States of America. The U.S. exported racism. It was an innovator in racism when it comes to sciences like eugenics. What do we miss, Gerald? This is, just, again, just an aside and a general question because it's what you were just saying I wanted to follow up on. What do people in the United States miss when they don't recognize that the United States was not only a place that had the quote-unquote burden of racism within its own borders, but was a proponent, an exporter of anti-black racism, an innovator of it around the world. Well, fortunately, since I've been 
dis dissing and dismissing certain strands of scholarship. Uh, let me uplift the scholarship that has pointed out that with regard to Hitler's fascism, which is oftentimes justifiably pointed to as the leading exemplar of bigotry and inflamed prejudice, that Hitler's fascism learned quite a bit uh, from the practices of U.S. Jim Crow, particularly with regard to laws barring sexual relations across certain gender or ethno-religious lines, for example. Uh, likewise, it's, as I pointed out in my book, White Supremacy Confronted, which we discussed on this program a few years ago, South African apartheid, the founders and framers of South African apartheid, not only uh, studied the U.S. example, uh, they were assisted by the United States in helping to install their hateful system at the southern tip of Africa. So I think that when we don't come to grips with this ugly reality, we become surprised, surprised when a Donald J. Trump can get 74, 75 million votes demonizing people from south of the border and engaging in the most unpleasant kinds of anti-black racism, et cetera, it comes as a shock. When instead, uh, I think that if that comes as a shock, you're either not paying attention or are terribly naive. There's so many questions I have for you uh, before I let you go. Oh, i got to ask you this. You write, complicating the ability to ferret out the surplus of misdeeds in boxing was the fact that the U.S. press, the supposed watchdog, was often a toothless terrier when it came to monitoring the sport. And I, when I was reading this, I kept thinking about what the legacy of this is on sports writing. You write that Gene Tunney, a uh, champion boxer, met my dad actually, complained that he had engaged two active newspaper men with daily columns and each of whom I agreed to pay 5% of my purses. And in return for this, they gave me sufficient mention in their columns to keep my name before the public and the big promoters. It was customary to make monetary gifts to certain newspaper men after important matches. Decades later, Muhammad Ali's trainer, Angelo Dundee, he confirmed that sports writers cooperated with the gray eminence of boxing. Uh, Frankie Carbo, an underworld maven, quote, they would find fat envelopes stuffed with pictures of dead presidents, if you know what I mean. So how important was sports media in facilitating the corruption that dominated boxing? And more importantly, do you think that facilitating corruption has had a lingering impact on sports uh, writing, which has often been criticized as more stenography promoting sports events than journalism? Well, I think... The answer is yes. I mean, the, the, the corruption and the craven nature of journalists is a thread throughout this book. Although, once again, speaking of apparent contradictions, uh, as my footnote suggests, I, I rely heavily upon the first draft of history, speaking of newspapers, in terms of recounting at least certain details uh, of the sport. So I don't want to dismiss sports journalism altogether, and also with regard to providing further context, uh, you mentioned Frankie Carbo, uh, the underworld leader who was the czar, if you like, of boxing in the 1950s when it was on television, sometimes every night, certainly every other night, some, and of course regularly, normatively, that as you know, I'm sure from watching movies, if nothing else, 
the underworld bosses, they play for keeps. And so you can make an argument that these sports writers were intimidated by people like Frankie Carpo, that it was easier to take a, an envelope full of pictures of dead presidents from Frankie Carpo as opposed to ignoring him altogether. And you might wind up in the East River with concrete shoes on your feet. So, but, but still, I think the question remains is to what extent does this corruption exist today? Now, what's interesting about some of the books that I've done, for example, this book on boxing, is that, as you know, with regard to archives in the United States, generally there's a 30-year rule that you can get access to court transcripts and all sorts of primary documents, uh, say, before 1990, uh, as opposed to because of the 30-year rule. But after 1990, uh, it's, it's, it's a virtual desert. And so therefore, it's difficult to ferret out what's actually happening today because it's more difficult to get into the archives and have the archives reflect what happened in 2020, for example. But I would hope that sports journalists, of which there are many in, in this country, uh, despite the fact that newspapers are dying on a regular basis, that, that, that they would investigate the unpleasant history of, of their profession. And I would say likewise for schools of journalism, like you have a leading school of journalism right there in Chicago at Northwestern University at Evanston, Illinois. Uh, I would hope that they would investigate this as well, because once again, I don't think we can begin to understand this society until we begin to explore uh, some of the darker, more obscure corners that, as it turns out, have maximum potency. And you point out that boxing reflected and refracted politics. Thus, when Primo Carrera, he boxed uh, Joe Lewis in the 1930s, uh, Carnera, sorry, uh, this battle of the titans was constructed as reflecting the then ongoing Italian invasion of Ethiopia, providing momentum for African solidarity. How much of boxing's success was based on the success of racialized marketing and the media promoting that kind of racialized marketing uh, of white media dividing and conquering the non-white public it feared yet felt superiority over? How much was the success of boxing based on racialized marketing? Oh, quite a bit. And you, you see that particularly with regard to the rise of Muhammad Ali from the 1960s to the early 1980s. It was not only that he was black, but that he was a Muslim. And if you look at my book on the 16th century, you'll realize that this conflict between Muslims and Christians has been an underlying factor. It's been a kind of motor of history uh, for centuries now. And so that was not necessarily alluded to by the sports writers when they were talking about the demonizing of Muhammad Ali, but they should have been talking about it. And it's not just Muhammad Ali when you talk about the racialized marketing or when you talk about marketing in general. For example, I spend quite a few pages in this book talking about what I call the funhouse mirror of boxing, and that's wrestling, wrestling, as they say, uh, which exceeds boxing, believe it or not, in terms of corruption in terms of predetermined outcomes, to use that euphemism, but also in, in terms of how the combatants become tropes for different 
kinds of ideals, if you like. I mean, for example, look look at the wrestler of the 1950s, Gorgeous George, who really subverted traditional ideas of masculinity insofar as he had his hair in a perm, that he would make sure that the ring was perfumed before he entered it, for example. And he was a kind of cowardly villain. Now, it'll take probably an English literature scholar or a scholar of theater to tease out all the consequences of putting forward this idea of a cowardly villain or putting forward the idea of a wrestler like Gorgeous George who was subverting masculinity as he was drawing male patrons to the arena, uh, paying handsome money to see him get defeated, which rarely took place, which then, of course, meant that he could live to fight another day and have even more male patrons come in with their money to pay to see him in an endless cycle. And I think that that idea of black boxers being cowards to fear shows the desperation that racists had to try to define and understand their racism as if they were throwing anything at the wall and just hoping anything sticks and not noticing any of the contradictions within their racism. It's just always astounding to me, Gerald. One last question for you. We have been speaking with historian Gerald Horn, and we are so happy to have him as our first guest of 2021. He is the author of the new book, The Bear Sweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. You can find all of our interviews with Gerald at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Horn. Gerald has been named to our favorite books list of books to be featured here on This Is Hell with their authors three years in a row now. And although this is the only book we've had on the show so far, Gerald, you're a front runner for 2021. So I've got one last question for for you, Gerald. Uh, And as always, it's our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I think that's where this is going to lie most. You write boxing was a kind of free enterprise of deregulation or neoliberalism run amok. When we look at boxing, what should it warn us about what happens when capitalism is allowed to run amok? Well, what happens when capitalism runs amok is that you end up with a mountain of cadavers. You end up with a lot of dead people. As noted in this book, I talk a lot about the fact that many boxers are actually executed in the ring. If they're not executed in the ring, they have a limited life expectancy because of the punishment they receive in the ring. And in some ways, you can see boxing as heralding this era that we have now entered in 2021. I mean, for example, In light of the pandemic, of course, one of the few regular jobs that can be found is a job delivering food for DoorDash or driving Uber, driving Lyft. And, of course, the employers say that these folks who are working for them are not really workers. They're independent contractors. Therefore, they don't have any benefits. Uh, 
they don't have any job protection. And, and th- that's basically the story of boxing. They were viewed as independent contractors. They didn't have a union. They still don't have a union, uh, which is one of the reasons why they've been in- exploited so shamelessly and so terribly. And in fact, I end the book by raising up once again this call that's been resonating through the centuries that boxers need a union. And I dare say, so do DoorDash delivery people, Uber drivers, and Lyft drivers too. I did have one more question for you because it's a question that our producer today, Jess Lipka, who boxes, wanted me to ask you. And that's a great question. Have you boxed in the past? When I was a young boy in St. Louis, I strapped on the gloves more than once. But I have to say, uh, a few blows to the head led me to the library. <laughs> I was boxing when I was 10 years old just in my neighborhood because I got a couple of pairs of boxing gloves. And so everybody in the neighborhood would be boxing. And I was boxing, I was 10 and I was boxing 15-year-olds. And after about 35 rounds of boxing uh, uh, 15-year-old, then three-minute rounds, like you, I had enough, Gerald. <laughs> If, if, and if anything will drive you into the books, it's boxing. <laughs> it definitely is. Thank you so much, Gerald, for being on our show. Great way to start 2021. Have a fantastic year. And when is your next book going to be coming out? Because you're so damn prolific. Well, I'm afraid to say I'm in lockdown because of the pandemic. And so hopefully in 2022. All right. Well, we'll be talking to you before then. Take care. It's always great to hear your voice, sir. And Happy New Year. Same to you. Good luck. Bye-bye. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Ruining sports since 1996. This is hell. For all the whining that uh, Americans do about sports being supposedly polluted by ideology. Work Like Horns clearly demonstrates how intertwined sports and other cultural art forms for that regard are part of those very ideologies. They're inseparable. The call to keep sports somehow pure and free of ideology is in itself uh, an ideological plea, one that prefers the hegemonic ideology that acts like the air we breathe and the water we swim in, and a plea that uh, would prefer not to recognize that very fact at all, that the predominant ideology is just the way the world is, and if you make me think too hard about that or feel bad about it, well, get it out of my sports, they say. Well... Sorry to break it to you, but facts don't care about your feelings, and historians like Gerald Horn supply us with the facts that we need to not only understand our our past and our inheritance, but also to make sense of the present and future condition we inhabit through no choice of our own. If you appreciate that This Is Hell shares crucial voices like Horn's, that are increasingly pushed to the margins of mainstream media and discourse, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show by subscribing to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thisishell. Your subscription keeps the lights on, servers running, 
and producers like me, Dan, and Kat paid to bring our audience the, this content absolutely free. Your contribution also entitles you to a discount on all merch available from thisishell.com, early access to the question from hell for the week, the ability to have your very own question from hell for Chuck answered each week, as well as access to a deep library of handpicked interviews from our archive, and of course, the This Is Hell weekly bonus Patreon episode, which airs every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central Time. It's now time for our weekly segment, The Past Inside the Present, with Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history, and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to better understand the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. Welcome to week three of Black History Month at This Is Hell. I am dedicating my segment for the four weeks of February to uh, talking about aspects of African-American history that are well explored and researched, but still not really that much talked about or understood well enough by a large part of the, well, mostly American population. This is difficult history since I am going into some of the tougher issues, uh, the stuff that would make school boards in red states kick me out as a teacher. Because this is stuff that generally makes many white Americans uncomfortable. Yes, it's not fun being told that your ancestors were dicks or that you, yes, you personally, white person sitting right there wearing a shirt, uh, benefit in tangible ways from slavery today. But facts don't care for feelings, so uh, toughen up, buttercup. As I keep repeating, I am coming at Black History Month from an angle that is heavily informed by my having grown up in Germany. As such, I have a different understanding of how to deal with my country's difficult and horrifying past than if I had grown up in the United States. Namely, I want to deal with this horrifying past and not sweep it under the rug or convince myself that it wasn't all that bad, actually, and that certainly my own ancestors did not participate or benefit from these bad things. And yes, not all white American ancestors directly participated in slavery, but this is not a binary issue. Just because your people did not directly participate in the bad thing, they still benefited from it. Maybe that does not make them directly responsible for it, but they were still part of the same project, part of the same country, and part of the same nation, ostensibly. Maybe they were abolitionists, in which case, cool, are, are you one too? Are you an anti-racist? Or do you think that you have no responsibility there and should not be asked to maybe just a little bit be humble uh, when it comes to, to these issues? That's the thing with collective generation bridging guilt that nobody really gets away clean. Hell, even myself, who really has no personal connection to slaveholders whatsoever in this country, benefit from slavery indirectly. I benefit from being a white person in America, just as I benefit from the Holocaust as a German. In small and very hard to trace ways, but still, I benefit. Anyway, that's just to again reiterate why I'm doing what I'm doing here. So now let's talk about Jim Crow. 
Jim Crow was originally a racist parody character in minstrel shows. So a character in theatrical and often musical shows in which white people put on black makeup to perform as caricatures of black people to the hooting and hollering of white audiences. And that's also one of the reasons why you should absolutely never, ever do blackface as a white person ever, uh, because that's basically what that goes back to. Um and after the end of slavery and the failure of reconstruction, this character, Jim Crow, became the namesake for laws, specifically in the American South, that aimed at keeping black people down, that reinforced the white supremacy and the racial hierarchy that before the Civil War had been enforced through slavery. In the South, Jim Crow laws mandated, quote unquote, separate but equal public facilities and institutions, segregated schools, segregated drinking fountains, segregated bathrooms, segregated public transport, so on and so forth. The but equal part, however, was mostly a cruel joke. The blacks only part of these things were basically always much worse than the whites only parts. But Jim Crow describes not just a system of laws, but a system of social order, of social practices. And the system informed, among other things, how laws were enforced in general, just as much as it informed what laws were enacted in the first place. And while Jim Crow followed the failure of Reconstruction, the emergence of the system was overall one that took several decades and only fully appeared on the scene around the turn of the century. So in the late 1890s. And this was part due to a generational change in the South where a younger generation of wealthy whites who had now grown up with a free black population came into power. And a generation of black people who had been born free matured alongside these younger whites. But as with all things, there was no single cause for Jim Crow to become the ruling paradigm. An agricultural crisis in the 1880s also contributed, and another financial crisis in the 1890s came along. It's kind of funny how there's always a financial crisis given <laughs> a couple of years. And um, then also the rise of populist politics in that same decade all fueled white resentment as well as a fear of blacks becoming too politically involved as much as uh, that was still possible in the first place anyway. The segregation of schools in the South happened for several reasons as well. One was that white lawmakers, following a grossly paternalistic streak, thought that black children simply lacked the mental uh, facilities that, that whites had, and that they were better off being schooled in segregated institutions where they would not be overwhelmed by all the contents being taught. Another reason was basically the opposite, the inverse. White leaders were scared that black children could learn too much and then grow up into adults that were difficult to control and keep in their place. The segregation of public facilities such as toilets and train cars, too, was justified through an odd form of paternalism. If blacks and whites were, quote-unquote, forced to travel together, southern white journalists asserted, they would certainly be the frequent subject of, rac of racial violence and the South would see quote, more dead, n-words, than have been heard of since Reconstruction, end quote. Blacks and whites were also never supposed to be incarcerated in the same prison cells, and they were forbidden uh, by law to work together when in prison. Southern blacks were also held in economic dependency on whites. Uh, this was most visible in the sharecropping system, in which black people then had to rent out tenant farms from white landowners and essentially pay for their tenancy with a large share of their crop. 
This tied many black families to the land much in the same way that slavery had. Due to the locations of these tenant farms deep in the backcountry away from settlements, they were also in many ways, in many, many cases, uh, wholly dependent on uh, their landlord for any sort of goods, farming implements, seeds, basically anything that they needed to buy ever. And the landlords, of course, exploited that to the maximum degree, overcharging them and running the black tenant farmers so deep into debt that they would never have a chance to escape their situation. And this, by the way, was one of the reasons why mail order catalog sales became a lifeline. When Sears Roba came along, ordering from their catalog for the first time allowed black people in the South to go around their landlords and enjoy a sliver of economic freedom. But why did these black people not just vote for better laws if the existing laws put them at such an awful disadvantage? Well, funny you should ask. There is a common misconception that black people were simply outlawed from voting, but nothing quite as blatant happened. Also, in some parts of the country, these things are still currently going on in some parts due to the endless wisdom of the Supreme Court and its 2013 gutting of the Voting Rights Act. So during Jim Crow, Southern whites kept black people from voting through a plethora of means. One was the poll tax where voters had to pay a fee for voting. This fee was often waived for poorer white people, but very strictly enforced for all blacks. And since black southerners were usually poor, this excluded them from voting. Uh, another insidious measure uh, were literacy tests. You can find some examples of those online if you if you just Google, you know, like Jim Crow literacy tests, and you'll see they are impossible. Uh, Southern legislatures would enact requiring voters uh, being able to read and write under the pretext of election integrity. Sounds familiar? Uh, and then they would again waive these tests for white people or have officials help white voters, give them extra time, and generally ensure that most white voters could cast their ballots. For black voters, things were different. Black people get very strict time limits, and oftentimes these tests were also just developed and laid out in, in such ways that made them impossible to complete without leaving them open to interpretation. Bad faith interpretation, that is. The third option, and this is something that is now again happening in some places, was to simply not have voting places open where black people lived and requiring black voters to travel very, very long distances to cast their ballots. And of course, then there was also a violence and the threat of violence by white militias and the Ku Klux Klan, all of which kind of was uh, making a comeback, comeback these days. When whites enacted horrific violence against blacks, that more often than not went entirely unpunished. If anyone was caught and charged with a crime in the first place, the culprits then faced usually all white juries and white judges who simply refused to convict anyone. Sometimes simply out of matter of principle. And black people could experience horrific violence and death for the smallest of infractions. The most common of those was when a black man was suspected of desiring a white woman. Here, the case of Emmett Till, a black boy from Chicago, is instructive. Young Emmett traveled from his Chicago home to visit family in Mississippi in 1955. In 1955, that is pretty recent. Um, there, he allegedly whistled after a white woman. A few days later, the woman's husband and her half-brother abducted abducted 14-year-old Emmett from uh, the home he was staying at, tortured him for hours before murdering him and dumping the mangled body in the Tallahatchie River. The two men were quickly caught, but the all-white jury and judge did not convict them of the murder. Uh, and years later, they actually bragged about the act in a magazine interview. 
the Till case, especially his mother's insistence on having an open casted funeral in Chicago to demonstrate the, to the world what had been done to her son, and the national coverage the funeral received then galvanized the people that eventually worked towards the success of the civil rights movement. Which seems like an uplifting note to end on, but let's not forget that the murderers ran free and that the forces who want to keep our black friends and countrymen down are still out there, hard at work, trying to turn back time and to keep those they deem unworthy of a place at the table away from it. Because, well, this is hell, after all. Oh, how I wish he could have remained on the line for a little crosstalk, but that would involve some time travel. And we historians are still figuring that technology out, but we're quite honestly more comfortable in the world of uh, paper and oral evidence and uh, analytical reasoning than on engineering. Alas. Alright listeners, you've been very patient waiting for this part of the show, and I do appreciate your patience. That's right, it's time for the first batch of answers to this week's question from hell. On Mondays, it is custom to read the Patreon answers first because the rest of you do not have the question yet. This week's question from hell is a rough one that will take some soul searching and some vulnerability. I know I've been spending the past several days reflecting on it. It's been haunting my dreams. This week's question from hell is, what do you dislike most about yourself? What do you dislike most about yourself? And our listeners over on Patreon have some answers for us. Some brave answers, I might add. Takes a lot of, again, vulnerability and critical self-reflection to address this week's question from hell rob h responds to the question what do you dislike most about yourself is this an audition for you to be my new therapist i don't know if that's addressed to me or chuck but uh that's an interesting prospect rob we'll have to talk more dm us when you get a chance patron Kaz responds, My inability to stay on one screen long enough to finish writing a thought. By the time I return to what I was writing, the app has refreshed. (laughs) I feel you there, Kaz. Kaz continues, Am I my own worst enemy via ADD or via my overuse of inaccessible technology? Yes. Kaz... You are making me feel very seen right now. Daphne M. responds, The high expectations and low self-esteem which go, which I, with which I go about things. I feel you there too. I f- feel like my problem is kind of yours and Kaz's response kind of melded together. The response from Essential which looks suspicious upon first look and upon further review, that's because it's a repost. You salami publishing there, Essential? I think this answer nonetheless applies to both questions somehow. Essential 
responds, I was in this prematurely air-conditioned supermarket and there were all these aisles and there were all these bathing caps that you could buy which had these kind of 4th of July plumes on them that were red and yellow and blue. I wasn't tempted to buy one, but I was reminded of the fact that I had been avoiding the beach. Well, Essential, I'm not sure what you dislike about yourself in there. I assume it's that you have either been avoiding the beach or that you weren't inclined to buy these fun soundings bathing caps for their elaboration needed. Patron Craig J responds to the question, what do you dislike most about yourself with the rude way I answer questions, you piece of, and then there are four asterisks. Take your pick about what those four asterisks mean. And thank you, Craig, for sparing me uh, potentially missing uh, your expletive when editing this for the radio. And finally, Old Grouch responds, my father. <laughs> Finishing strong there, patrons. Keep the responses coming, listeners. You can answer the question from hell by posting on our Facebook, Twitter, Discord, and, of course, Patreon pages, or by emailing Chuck at chuck at thisishell.com. Your response will be read on the air. Every Wednesday, we will choose our favorite response and announce it on the air as well. The winner gets their pick of This Is Hell merchandise from our website, thisishell.com. And again, we have some new items in stock. That's all I've got for you today, listeners. I'll catch you all tomorrow when we continue our deep dive into the work of prolific historian and listener favorite, Gerald Horn. Thank you for listening, and stay beautiful. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>